Philosophers and psychologists generally make a distinction between signs and symbols. The deal with signs is they usually have only one meaning, and really only one meaning. Throughout the city of Denver, for example, there are countless numbers of signs, perhaps the most common of which is a red stop sign or a red traffic light, and that color alerts us to one thing and one thing only, stop. And good drivers, of course, do just that. Symbols, on the other hand, are the total opposite. They have not one meaning but several. The technical term for it is multivalent, layered, with meaning. And the deeper you get, the more you find. It's so complex, a symbol is so complex that it can even carry contradictory meanings within itself. For example, light, that universal symbol across religions, across cultures. Light can enlighten and light can make one blind. Light brings clarity and shadows all at once. Although Jesus is not a philosopher or a psychologist, he seems to be, in this gospel reading at least, on the periphery of that distinction between signs and symbols. The Pharisees, on the other hand, seem obsessed with the literal with signs, with things that have singular meaning and therefore can be tested and measured. Now, in defense of the Pharisees, they are, in all four Gospels, portrayed as one-dimensional characters. Um, They serve a purpose in the four Gospels. They represent people who are literal-minded, and they represent people who have a one-dimensional motive, that is to test and ultimately to do away with the questions and the presence of Jesus. Scholars more and more point out that Jesus actually shares a lot in common with the Pharisees. They both love questions, they both love religious dialogue, and they're both trying to bring this commentary to religious philosophy and ritual. Nevertheless, these one-dimensional characters ask Jesus a single question, a single question that proves what the gospel writer has already told us, that they're simply trying to trap Jesus. Their motive is public. And so they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes? Yes or no? True or false? Jesus oddly at first calls for a coin, a denarius. A coin is produced and Jesus asks, as he often does, great questions. Whose head is on the coin? The emperor's, they say, which leads to one of Jesus's greatest or most memorable sayings. Give, therefore, to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And what Jesus does in that moment is shift everyone's attention from signs like coins, that that tool for currency, that tool that means one thing, like a dollar bill, it's a hundred cents, no more, no less. He shifts everyone's attention from that to the symbolic, to the question, what is God's? 
And of course, the answer is everything. Everything is coming from God and returning to God. Every child, every heart, every dream, every fiber and particle and molecule of the entire cosmos is returning home to God. The great symbol of God's presence is people. It's people who receive bread and wine. It's people who wade in the water. It's people who reveal great, great depths. And that's why that word soul communicates so much. That that ancient and antique word that communicates there is depth within every single one of us. So much depth that we ourselves don't even understand completely or fully who we are much less who we will become. There's a great saying that I just have always loved, and I don't know that it's a southern thing, but when you'd see somebody, I heard this from a young age, when you see somebody on the street who looked really curious or interesting, when you'd see somebody who'd done something really wrong, when you'd see somebody who appeared just fascinating, someone would say, mmm, there's a story there. There's a story there. Each and every one of us have soul and story, and it's incredible that each story is unrepeatable, unique. I've been thinking all week about how to give some color to that, because as, as nice of a thought as that is, it needs some, some color and some specificity. And after three months, one of the things I've loved here is, gosh, you're all so interesting. And there's so many people here doing profound and good and hospitable work. But I wanted to raise up just one example to give some color and some particularity to it. And I thought of one person, forgive me, I could have given hundreds of examples of goodness here. But I want to give one, and his name is John Lake. And he tends to sit in the back at the 1115. We will not make him stand. John endeared himself to me because he was on the search committee. Which means that he just has, just he's the smartest soul in this whole church. And really knows what he's talking about when it comes to priests. He and two others were the three visitors from the West whom you sent to interview me and a goodly number of our staff and to meet my family and my children in Memphis almost a year ago in November. At that point in the search, and I know it was going along a bit for you, for us, we were intrigued, we were interested, we were certainly open, but we actually had not given our hearts to the thought of actually doing this. Part of the reason why is because we'd only been dealing with documents, with words, with parish profiles, with things like that, and we had not yet met a real person until Jim, John, and Heidi showed up. We had dinner at the house. They wanted a chance to meet our children. Our children came for, um, not for dinner, but for dessert. We went from the dining room into, because we didn't all fit in the dining room, went to the living room and landed there. We each had a chair. John Lake landed on the floor. He sat down on the carpet, which was a little unusual. 
Our two children at the time, 16 and 15, landed on the couch. And we were talking, and and John then says, asked them a question that had to be totally unscripted. He turns to them, he says, so, Adeline and Evans, what do you think about moving to Denver? And I thought to myself, well, that's a bit blunt. (laughs) And our daughter, who is really dreamy and super smart and confident, she said, Well, I always knew that I was going to have a Western phase to my life, so let's knock it out now. (laughs) And our son, who is not dreamy, and he's a lot more skeptical, and you have to earn his trust, and he's always focused on not what's up ahead, but where he is. He's always present right there, not somewhere else. And John said, well, what about you, Evans? And Evans said, and the only way he can, blank slate. <laughs> and coming out of that dinner, we started giving our hearts to all of this in a way that we had not done before. And John became, in my eyes at least, a kind of magician, not just with adults, but with children and with all hearts. When I started work, it was two or three weeks in, and we got word coming out of the weekend that someone had died named Virginia Pine. All I knew about her is that she was 94 and her husband was 94, and went into the scheduling business and scheduled the family and her husband and and children to come by on Wednesday afternoon. Wednesday morning at a 7 a.m. Eucharist um, where I was the celebrant. And John Lake with his husband Harold are always there. Came time for the prayers of the people and I said in that lovely chapel aloud, we prayed for those who've died, I said Virginia Pine's name. After the service, John came right up to me and said, hey, do you know know Virginia Pine? And I said, no, John, I've only been here two weeks. I've not met her yet. And he said, I'll tell you about Virginia Pine. I said, I'm meeting with her family this afternoon. I'll do the service on Friday with Katie. He said, I'll tell you about Virginia. Let me tell you several stories. They ushered and they were fantastic. Loved them a lot. And one story in particular is I was at Kansas State. And I was in the gentleman's room. And as I was leaving the bathroom, I was thinking to myself, gosh, these are really nice bathrooms here at Kansas State in the middle of nowhere. And he looked as he was leaving at a plaque on the wall, and the bathrooms were actually given by Virginia and Perry Pine. So John could not wait to come back to Usher and come back to St. John's for the next Sunday to see Virginia. And he saw Virginia at the door, and he said, Virginia? I was just at Kansas State. And Virginia smiled. Turns out that's her alma mater. He said, and I enjoyed your restrooms and noticed the plaque. And Virginia said with a twinkle in her eye, well, we wanted to do something useful. (laughs) And I had at least, after talking to John, four stories for a burial homily. John, when he was junior warden, And he told me this story last week. When he was junior warden, he was in charge of building and grounds, and there were lights out in the chapel, and nobody could figure out how to fix them. The sextons couldn't figure it out. The staff couldn't figure it out. The building and grounds committee couldn't figure it out. The clergy surely couldn't figure it out. So they put together a committee. The committee couldn't figure it out. So one day, John went into the chapel by himself and took a ladder and just went and changed out the light bulb and put in new ones. Guess what? 
they worked. <laughs> Thereby answering that question, how many Episcopalians does it chance, take to change a light bulb? The question I hear him ask a lot of people at the door and of me is, how are you doing? How are you doing? Perhaps because his name is John, I think John embodies St. John's. We who at our best ask that question of one another, friends and strangers, old and young. How are you doing? How's your soul? St. John's at its best is a people with tremendous and fascinating stories. And one of the things that's been true about you for decades is that you not only cherish your stories, but you realize as you tell them, they don't take away the space for other people, for new people, for other religions to tell their own stories. Storytelling is never a zero-sum game. You're a people who love to laugh. You're a people of great authenticity. You're a people of all ages. You're a people with a lot of wisdom and a whole lot of depth. Just look into your eyes. Start with your own. God has given us so much, especially each other, and we have everything we need to thrive. In other words, in returning to the gospel reading, you and I are not tests or traps, let alone are we labels, but instead we are symbols of God's very presence. And like all symbols, we are inseparable from what we give and convey, relationships, relationships with real people, relationships with God, which means that for us to know and trust and become more intimate with God, we need each other now and always.